An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, it's our pleasure to welcome Sarah Murphy, Chief Strategy Officer for the Shareholder Commons. Founded in 2019, the Shareholder Commons quickly has become a leader in the responsible and sustainable investing field by explaining why it's in the interest of diversified investors, which after all are just about all investors, as we all invest through mutual funds, ETFs, or diversified portfolios, to care about the status of societies as a whole based on investment theory. The wealth of investors, according to TSC, depends on the health of the environmental, social, and financial systems on which the capital markets rely. Some disclosure and some personal reflection. Here's the disclosure part. I serve on TSC's board of directors. Here's the personal reflection. Sarah and her compatriots there sometimes push harder and farther than I would, despite the fact that I helped invest the systems level, investing in theory on which TSC's actions are based. I respect that. The discussions are fascinating, intellectually honest, and informative. And it's good to get pushed, even when we disagree. As you might gather from that, the shareholder commons takes its work seriously. Thankfully, taking the work seriously doesn't mean that they take themselves too seriously or have a holier-than-thou attitude. Sarah is a great example of that. She began her career working for NGOs, focusing on international development and in disaster response. She wrote some of the early 2000s most perceptive ESG research with a focus on defense and the bioengineering sectors. She worked for Fortis and BNP Paribas and for some of the best research shops in ESG, including the Investor Responsibility Research Center, Calvert, and the Sustainable Investments Institute. Somehow, amidst all the serious work, she's always retained her sense of humor and spontaneous joy. Even Sarah's Twitter handle, S. Murph Smiles, is joyful. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, John. That's a really lovely introduction. <laughs> so what's your origin story? Here on Outside Aliens become a mantra that interesting people often have lived interesting lives. And I know you grew up in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, although I don't know why. And I don't know all the details. So how did you become the person you are today? Yeah, so my father was in the Foreign Service, which is the sort of baseline explanation for why I generally never lived anywhere for more than two, two or three years at a time. And while I was born in the, in, in the United States, in Washington, D.C., to be precise, to be more precise, almost on the Key Bridge, my folks moved overseas with me when I was just a couple of months old, um, moved us to Japan. And there we stayed in Asia for the first 10 years of my life. So I didn't really properly come to the United States until I was 10. And then that only for a couple of years. And then back out, we went to sub-Saharan Africa. So 
my upbringing was in a lot of places, chief among them, Japan, Taiwan, Burma, Djibouti, East Africa, and Guinea, West Africa. And as you can hear, among those, some developing countries. And in particular, I was in Burma during the battle days of Unical. And I mean, at the time, nobody even bothered hiding the fact that there was child labor taking place, that there were forced relocations taking place. And these were things that I was able to observe quite directly. And for such a young person, and I mean, really for anybody, that's shocking, right? It leaves a mark. And it had a lot to, while at the time I didn't know what to do with the chagrin that that caused, it, it definitely pushed me, I think, into uh, the career that I followed thereafter. So it's an obvious development to go into international development and disaster response, um, including as a stint as an emergency services for the Red Cross. What was that like? What, what, what's it like? dealing with those sorts of situations um, from quite honestly a position of privilege and, 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 and trying to understand and fix things that, as you say at the time, just seemed normal. No one even hit them. My very, very first jobs were in um, the international development field and, I, and, and specifically for small NGOs that I think from my vantage point at the time, uh, almost felt like they were trying to take on too much with too few resources. But the disaster response field was a fascinating one. It really kind of covered two poles, if you will. So on the one hand, I was responsible for a very local jurisdiction, Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And um, in my day-to-day -day work, I dealt with things like just, you know, single family fires and where Maybe a small number of people were affected, you know, a family of four or five, something like that. And we would, we would help those folks if they didn't have the resources and sort of catch them at, you know, one of the worst moments in their lives. And it was a fairly dire, but in some ways lonely event for them. And it ran the gamut then because I also operated as part of the larger Red Cross response, which would deploy people to bigger disasters, you know, floods, hurricanes, stuff like that, and help with much larger recovery operations. Interestingly enough, little factoid was that the 9-11 the Pentagon response was in my jurisdiction. And so we handled the basically the care and feeding for, for all of the um, emergency responders in the wake of that event. But on the more, the, the more sort of climate-based disasters, I think for me, what started to really chafe at my soul was I would be in some small community in Mississippi replacing a mattress that was stamped with Red Cross from the last time we were there, right? Because people were still living in a floodplain. And I kept thinking to myself, my goodness, why, <laughs> why aren't we dealing with why they're here in the first place, why they can't get out in the first place? And in, in a long and roundabout way, uh, with no background in finance or economics, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, really, it, it's about following the money. And if we can follow the money, and do better about how we allocate money and manage money, then maybe we can actually get to some of the causal factors that, that contributed to all of the disasters, for which I felt like I was just sort of putting a Band-Aid on a sucking chest wound. So that explains why you made the transition. How did you make the transition? As you say, it wasn't your background. Um, and you apparently did it pretty well. We'll get into that next. But how did you make the transition? So... 
I believed that I invented sustainable investing <laughs> for a brief moment in time. <laughs> I thought, hey, <laughs> you know, what if we what if we directed our investments uh, in such a fashion as to address these social and environmental challenges? Uh, upon very quick research, I discovered that I was not the first the first one across the line on that notion. <laughs> but that's good because that gave me a place where I could try to, uh, it basically gave me a career path to try to enter. And so I immediately, my undergrad degree was in French and Spanish, two languages I already spoke, by the way. So <laughs> I don't know how well I used my time then. But um, I packed myself back off to grad school, um, went to get a degree in economics, a sort of a partially self-made degree um, in economics with a with an environmental and agricultural focus. I mean, now they have all these degree programs for this stuff, right? But at the time, they didn't really. So basically, tried to go make myself useful in the sustainable investment field. And that is when I joined ICCR and was kind of off to the races with a research role. And um, I really haven't looked back. So one of the places you worked was BNP. And you had, I think, a singular experience there towards the end of your time, when your investment team thought Transocean was, had great numbers, and you said, nope, it's a risky investment. Can you give us the fill on that? How did it come about? What happened and what happened next? Yeah, and, and just for clarity, this is actually when we were still Fortis Investments before the BNP acquisition. But at the time, we had what I think was a pretty innovative business model and maybe even still is kind of an innovative business model, which was that the um, investment analysts and sustainability analysts worked in lockstep together. And so the simplest way of defining my job at the time was that I, I, I defined the investable universe on the basis of sustainability criteria. And so when it came to Transocean, uh, and this is before the Macondo oil spill, the problem I had with, tra with Transocean was that I just found their safety measures, protocols, data, reporting, all of it, completely opaque. I just couldn't get at, get at the juice of it, the nugget of it, to understand what this company was doing in terms of accident prevention and, and, and not, just, not just environmental, but human. And at the end of the day, I said, listen, I cannot, they, they, just, don't, they just don't meet our criteria for sustainable investing. And um, I don't think that we can keep the position. And <laughs> that was met with some consternation because, you know, at the time it was performing really well. But because we did have an, an investment process, we did exit the position. And I think not, not a couple of days later, the Macondo oil spill took place. And of course, that stock did not do well in the wake of it. And um, the way I found out about that was that my portfolio manager came bounding out of his office and hit me on the forehead. I know that's probably not appropriate these days, but that was the outcome. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to put too much credit on that because, you know, sometimes that type of an investment process will find something like that and plenty of times it won't, right? It just happened that it lined up on that one. Right. And this was the deep water horizon mm -hmm. on those spell. Mm -hmm. Um, did did you get a good bonus at least out of that? For you always get bonuses <laughs> when you make money. How about do you get a bonus when you avoid a disaster? What are the wow, that's too far back for me to have a good memory of how that played out. I, so the I, answer is no, because you would have remembered. Trust me. Uh, anyway, yeah. So go ahead. let's go ahead to 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 the shareholder comments. I mean, you worked for 
sort of a virtual who's who in the field from the Inter-American Development Bank, Motley Fool, Calvert, Sustainable Investments Institute. He chose to join what at the time was a startup NGO. Tell me about the shareholder commons. What does it do and what attracted you to it? I think the shareholder commons crossed my radar at a pretty opportune time in my own professional and personal development, which is basically, it turned up at a moment where I was starting to feel a little bit deflated as to the impact of my own career and work. And I can just stick with myself for the moment and not even worry about the broader field. I just, um, I was just wondering, you know, how much at the end of the day, my efforts and work were really changing out there in the landscape and feeling some sort of some sort of limitation that I couldn't really put my finger on. And it was right around then that the shareholder commons cropped up on my LinkedIn feed. <laughs> and this, it's the brainchild of, uh, of our CEO, Rick Alexander, as you know. And what we're basically trying to do is deal with a perversion in the capital markets, wherein pretty much every investment structure out there, for the most part, is designed around the idea that if we if we incentivize individual enterprises to maximize their value, that our diversified portfolios will somehow end up being a sum of parts and completely neglecting the fact that a very rational way for an enterprise to maximize its value is, is to externalize costs, right? It's a little embarrassing telling you this, John, since you're the guy who literally wrote the book on this, but... <laughs> Uh, but so, as you know, um, externalities, you know, Econ 101 are a really important part of the business landscape. And it's something for which, in general, investment protocols, dogma, tradition take no account. And so it's really kind of the miracle of modern investing that I, as a, as a saver, you know, most, the vast majority of investors are just trying to make sure they don't want to run out of money before they die, right? I mean, that's basically... Most investors just don't want to run out of money before they die. And the people who run the money for them, who manage their 401ks, their IRAs, what have you, ha have diversified their portfolios specifically to protect them from idiosyncratic risk, right? That's the risk, as you know, <laughs> of uh, any one company underperforming against its benchmark. And, and so having very successfully done that, having successfully diversified so that most pension funds, for instance, own pretty much a broad slice of the economy. The result is that most of those portfolios then depend far more for their value on the health of the economy itself, rather than the value of any, any individual holding in those portfolios. And yet we invest as though uh, those, each individual stock in those portfolios should maximize its value, even if it comes at the cost of the rest of that portfolio by plundering the commons on which we depend. Um, whether it be whether it be you know natural resources, uh, whether it be emitting too much in the way of greenhouse gases, sort of strangling our workforce, what ha what have you, and that's just not good for the value of their portfolios. And so we're trying to work with investors to provide them tools to solve for that ninety percent store of value that comes from the systems themselves. So, I will tell you that I was on a private call with someone who is clearly a governance expert and was talking to an asset, they were, they were speaking to an asset management company and reviewing last year's annual general meeting season. And without mentioning the shareholder commons by name, 
Um, they said that some of the shareholder resolutions from TSC were crazy. That they told companies to stop making as much money as they could. TSC doesn't believe in capitalism. And you've already given your answer to that, which is clearly you do, but it's for diversified investors rather than company base. So you try to maximize the overall portfolio. But if I get that philosophy correct, the idea is to set guardrails against actions that might benefit individual companies and destroy economic value overall. That's pretty advanced and pretty nuanced. One way to think about it is it's trying to solve a prisoner's dilemma for the entire economic system. So what's the reception been? I mean, obviously this person didn't get it. And trust me, she's got a law degree. She's very smart. Um, are, are people, institutional investors, companies, regulators listening? Have we made any progress? Yeah. And, and just to say it, we are in fact capitalists, uh, right? And, and we believe in that system and we're just trying to make sure that it works actually to its optimum. You know, I mean, corporations' ability to aggregate multiple investors' capital and participate in free market competition has delivered vast material bounty, right, that we all enjoy, or at least investors enjoy. And we're just trying to ensure that the market accounts for all the costs of that appropriately. So we want to keep the baby of price discovery and throw out the bathwater of externalized social and environmental costs, right? And that's what we're trying to do. And so in a sense, I mean, there is a way in which the person's observation was correct. We are in some cases suggesting that companies should forfeit a certain amount of value if that value comes at the expense of broader portfolio value. And so if, if, if I were to throw out an example, you know, we, we filed some shareholder proposals this year and are working toward a guardrail pertaining to, to antimicrobial resistance um, and specifically the um, meat supply chains that can contribute to that resistance from overuse. You know, a company like McDonald's, they do really well on price and therefore eventually on, on returns to their shareholders by squeezing animals into increasingly small spaces and putting them in disease-promoting conditions that help to cut costs and then basically washing them with antibiotics to keep them from dying too soon. And that, of course, then creates resistance among some of the major drugs on which we rely for modern medicine. I mean, it's really one of the pillars uh, of modern medicine. And and so, yes, I mean, that that helps McDonald's return value to its shareholders. But if it comes at the expense of the public health system that supports so much of the economy, whatever marginal value was returned from McDonald's by that process is completely dwarfed by the cost then that those portfolios absorb. And this is demonstrable in the academic literature, right? These costs have been quantified. And of course, listen, I mean, I'm a trained economist. I'm very aware of the assumptions that can be made in, those, in that type of research, but directionally, we know it to be true. And so it's those costs that we're trying to deal with that still come home to roost in those portfolios in a much bigger way than whatever value McDonald's might have returned. And so to the other part of your question as to the reception that we're getting, I'm actually quite surprised at how well people are starting to take this on board. And that the challenge for us now, I think, is what we're having is we're seeing the lights go on with a lot of individuals within large institutions. The challenge then is for them to carry that water 
into the larger systems within which they operate. And that's, of course, just a bigger beast. And we're, we're still pretty new, as you said, founded in 2019. And so we still have a lot of work to do. But I'm pretty encouraged by the fact that you're seeing more and more people realizing that they can best serve their beneficiaries and their clients by taking account of this systems value that we're talking about and the field to which you've contributed so much in your own work. You primarily work in the United States, but you do to work globally. And two major European converts, I guess, Aviva has published a really good paper on this. And they actually now have a, someone who's in charge of system stewardship. And DWS, the German giant, has called for systems level analysis in their dealing with the EU. And obviously, you, I, should, I shouldn't ignore the people who've been on board for the time. Uh, legal in general is, has a representative on your board. So there does seem to be some movement. But I note that all three of those are European. You are perhaps uniquely suited with your um, upbringing to discuss this. What do you think creates the difference in philosophy about this and rate of acceptance between European entities and American ones? I think there are a lot of things that could go into that. And of course, some of this is just going to be speculation on my part. But I think there's a certain degree to which... Almost culturally, Americans have a, a greater tendency toward individualism. And I'm not even necessarily offering that as a criticism. You know, all societies are different and this type of thing tends to produce both benefits and costs. Uh, and so I do think that investment managers in the United States reflect that fact, right? We, we tend to prefer to, you know, come up with our own secret sauce and stuff like that and, and uh, develop proprietary systems and all the rest of it. And I think that that can develop some really amazing innovation. It's a challenge in this space because some of these problems are collective action problems. And really, you know, if you think about what we're talking about, right, what we want to see investors doing, we want them to chase alpha. Go ahead, seek alpha, but don't do it at the expense of beta, right? So take this collective action approach to attend to the systems that we all rely on and then go do your secret sauce on the alpha part, right? And that's what we're trying to promote. Now, having said that, we do see some American entities who are moving forward a little bit, definitely further down the path on this type of thinking. I would call out Westpath as a particular example of an investor and an asset owner to boot that is starting to make a lot of a lot of stronger effort around the system stewardship concept. And we have other other asset owners in the U.S. and asset managers who, with whom we're working and who are starting to demonstrate interest in trying to figure out exactly how it is that they're going to go out there into the world and talk about this a little bit more directly and publicly. So I'm maybe more encouraged than you would have found me at this time last year on the U.S. front. Let me uh, move on to some personal traits because We've both been in this field for a long time, and we both know that you run into people in sustainable and responsible finance that can be characterized as scolds, I guess. They're, it's always doom and gloom. They're telling us how to act. We're never good enough. Um, they're pessimists. Put simply, they're not fun to be with, right? Now, you personally just mentioned antibiotic resistance. Um, the UK government predicts 10 million unnecessary deaths from this. It's not a fun topic, 
And yet you come across as optimistic. I don't think anyone would describe you as misanthropic. So how do you stay optimistic? How do you stay joyous? Yeah, well, I think some of it is just a character, right? I'm much more interested in the things for which I think I can solve. I'm not particularly given to wallowing in the mire of hopelessness. <laughs> there's certainly that. But also, um, I don't know. I think that I think that there's there's cause for a certain degree of optimism. We 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 humans are pretty amazing when we when we allow ourselves to be, right? When we get out of our own way. And even even if we get sort of wonky around, you know, the investment landscape and progress um, from activists around environmental, social and governance issues, you know, look, the South Africa divestment movement had some real impact. Right. Or it, to get a little bit wonkier still, you know, we have staggered boards now. We're, we're talking about, you know, board chair independence and so forth. I mean, maybe not as much as we should be, but we can see actual progress coming out of this type of work. Um, and. So I think that we're we're a pretty amazing species when we put our minds to it. There's evidence of our ability to make change sometimes quite rapid. And also, I just can't bear the alternative of just throwing up my hands and you know, taking my toys and going home. <laughs> but I think finally, too, when it comes to our theory of change, it's worth noting that when we talk about externalities, it's not just cost. Our theory of change also encompasses positive externalities, right? And I think that we need to do a better job of encompassing that as well uh, when it comes to to corporate um, behavior out there in the world. There are many companies that are probably delivering more value than their balance sheets indicate. And so that's another reason for optimism. I think, by the way, you misspoke. You said we have stacked boards. I think you meant to say We've gotten rid of most of the staggering boards. Sorry, what did I say? Yes, thank you, John. <laughs> it's okay. Let me change the topic. One of the things about doing this podcast, I get to research the guests. And in doing my research, I came across this relatively obscure band, Drive TFC, with one Sarah E. Murphy doing lead vocals. Tell me about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm inclined to deny all knowledge, Sean. <laughs> no, yes. Uh, when I lived in Washington, D.C., I was definitely part of a band. I actually really loved it. It's how I met my my husband. And uh, obscure is a very kind way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, we were a five-person band and uh, played out around the local clubs and really enjoyed ourselves. And I miss it. Why don't you do it again? Well, I think the simplest answer is that we were five piece band and we kind of all blew to the four, you know, to the four corners of the world. AJ and I moved here to Savannah, Georgia. Our flautist moved to the Canary Islands. Our bass player moved to Milwaukee. And so we actually do sometimes still collaborate on remote projects and stuff, but it's not the same when you're not in person. The flautist, I see you were uh, way ahead of the Lizzo trend. <laughs> Indeed, but somewhere behind Jethro Tull. <laughs> so what does the TFC and Drive TFC stand for? Um, are you bound by FTC rules? No. <laughs> it stands for Drive the Fucking Car. <laughs> it's basically about punching through blocks and, you know, writer's block and so forth and just just moving forward with an idea and getting it out there collaboratively and that your your partners will help you bring it home. Love it. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Well, beyond work, you mean? Work or personal. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely p- passionate about the work itself, and I think you've heard plenty on that. I just adore my vegetable garden. I love growing on my own food. I love tending my bees. I love watching the building blocks of our basic survival creep up underneath my fingertips, and it just seems like a bloody miracle. <laughs> How do you relax? Relax. <laughs> um, I love camping. I don't do enough of it, but that is probably the most relaxing thing for me. And I don't mean I don't mean RV or glamping. I mean digging a hole in the ground to do your business camping. What type of music do you listen to now aside from Drive TFC's Spotify page? <laughs> can't say I ever listen to our own stuff. <laughs> I, I gosh, I can't think of a music that I don't like. It runs the gamut. Listen, I'm li- I'm in Savannah, Georgia. I listen to a lot of Outkast. I love opera. I love jazz soul it kind of just depends on my mood entirely what are you reading right now oh i'm reading uh what's it called my seditious heart by arundhati roy it's wonderful it's basically a collection of her early essays on the uh on various events particularly of a political nature in in india over the space of a few decades and it's kind of it's a little alarming that some of i think the most worrying trends here in the United States seem to be fairly paralleled with their own flavor in India over time, the way she observes them. And I can't decide if that's amazing or really, really upsetting, (laughs) but it's certainly informative. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Am I taking the time of year as fixed? Right now. We are recording this just for podcast listeners (laughs) in winter 2022-2023. Although, as Sarah has pointed out, she's in Savannah, where it's not really winter ever. <laughs> I think I'm still going to pick the same place every time. Um, Corsica, I absolutely adore it. Ocean, mountains, food, delicious drinks. Like, it just, I don't know what they're lacking. It's fantastic. And, and, a, and an irascible, fun population. <laughs> Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I think I would tell them, I'm going to slightly bend your rule and say sort of two things. We, we can solve for the really, really daunting challenges we have. And one of the ways to do that is to recognize that just because we've always done something one way doesn't mean we have to keep doing it that way. And we can actually pivot. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Sarah Murphy. As you've heard, Sarah has a wonderfully joyous way of presenting some of finance and the world's most intractable and important problems and trying to make progress towards them. And for that and for the interview, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, John. I really had a, a good time doing this. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.